shouldn't I? For most people, the idea of holiness is that holiness equals goodness. Those who are holy are those who are good. Holiness is a, a moral line, a moral measurement. Whenever we think about somebody who is, uh, is holier than thou, as they say, we, we mean somebody who's kind of acting better than they, than they maybe actually are or trying to act better than people around them. The biblical idea of holiness doesn't begin with moral goodness. That is a component of it eventually. But the biblical idea of, of holiness is the idea of separation and purity. It, it's the idea that God is purely God, that he is only God in his nature and in his essence. He is completely God, fully God in his nature and in his, in his essence. Uh, going back to my childhood, and, and this actually goes back beyond the childhood of anybody in, in this room, even John, um, ivory soap ivory soap has, has been said to be, some of you would, would remember it maybe, ivory soap is 99 and 44, 44 one hundredths percent pure. 99 and 44 one hundredths percent pure. Um, that motto goes all the way back, by the way, to 1891. Uh, another ivory soap motto is so pure that it floats, and that goes back to 1898. Now, what purity has to do with floating, I don't know, but that's what they said. But, but there's another word that you would use to describe something that is 99 and 44 one-hundredths percent pure. And that word is impure. Something that is 99 and 44 one-hundredths percent pure is completely impure. If ivory soap was 99 and 99 one-hundredths percent pure, it would be completely impure. Purity is not a sliding scale. Impurity is a sliding scale. There, there's, a, you know, we, we're very well aware that with packaged foods, there's a percentage of contaminants that are allowed in packaged foods in order for them to pass because you, you can't make something in a, a factory situation and keep it absolutely pristine pure. But something that's 99 and 44 100% pure is actually impure. Now, our bodies are not pure either by this same token. We are actually made up of a number of different elements. This is the periodic table of the elements, and I've highlighted and read the elements that are found in our bodies. Some of them are found in very large percentages. Others are just trace elements. But we are not any one thing. We are not any pure thing. We are a, a blend. We are a mixture. Uh, by the way, I, I read this last night. Our bodies are also home to more than... 10,000 species of microorganisms. 10,000 species plus of microorganisms inhabit our bodies, and they inhabit our bodies into the numbers of, into the trillions. There's actually many more times microorganisms in our bodies than our own cells, if you, simply by count. It's just that they're so tiny that 
we outnumber them. But our, our bodies are not pure. We're a mixture. We're not purely one thing or another. We are a blend. We're, we are a combination. We are, in, in metal terms, we are an alloy. Well, God is pure. To say that God is pure is to say that he is holy. To say that he is holy is to say that he is pure. There is nothing but God in God. There is nothing but God in God. He is not a mixture or a blend or an alloy. He is pure. He is uncontaminated. He is perfect and complete in himself. He is holy. He was holy before anything was created. And he is holy now. Having created all things, God remains completely distinct and separate from everything that he has made. Theologians would say that he is untouched by and unchanged by anything in his creation. That doesn't mean that he is far away from his creation. He isn't. In fact, he can't be far away from his creation because he's omnipresent. But he himself is not contaminated or polluted or mixed in with anything in his creation. He is utterly self-existent. Because within God, there is only God and there is nothing but God within God. I know that's a funny way to say it. Because of that, there are at least two things that God can't do. There are at least two things that God can't do. First of all, God can't not be himself. God can't not be himself. I guess there's only one thing God can't do. God can't not be himself. God can't be anything but who he is by his essence and by his nature. He is pure in that sense. He is holy. So by way of example, when the Bible says that God is love, it's 1 John 4, 8. When the Bible says that God is love, it doesn't mean that God created love. That God looked at the humanity that he had made, that he looked at the creation, and he said that these creatures are going to need some emotional connection between themselves. I will invent something to do that, and I will call it love. Now, what the Bible says is not that God is loving, although he is. The Bible says that God is love. He is love by his nature and by his essence. It is not merely what God does, but who God is. And that's why 1 John 4, 8, where it says, God is love, the first part of the verse says, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. He doesn't say the one who does not, know, does not love does not know God, for God is loving, although, again, that is true. But love is an attribute of God. As with every other attribute, justice, righteousness, mercy, kindness, uh, truth, and so on, these are not created things that he has defined, but rather descriptions of his own nature, descriptions of his own essence. Now, that's all kind of high and theological and, and lofty, and I, I hope I, hopefully I didn't confuse anybody, but the application of this is actually very clear. And it simplifies things for us. Sin is not simply a violation of an arbitrary law, but a denial of God's very person. 
when I was coming down from, from Creighton, in Creighton where a uh, community of believers is, the speed limit is 30 miles an hour. You go down about two, three blocks, and it goes to 35 miles an hour. And then you turn south on 13, and it's 45 miles an hour. And then it becomes 50 miles an hour. Then it becomes 60 miles an hour. And it remains 60 miles an hour until you get to Pierce, and it drops to 45. Then it drops to 30. Then it comes up to 35. Then it goes back to 60, or 45, and then it goes back to 60, and so on and so on. Those are, those are arbitrary. Those are arbitrary numbers. They could, they could drop the numbers in those towns to 20 miles an hour and not have much of a difference. They could increase them to 35 throughout Pierce, and it really wouldn't have much difference because people are going to drive how they drive. They're, they're arbitrary numbers. There's no particular reason that 13 is 60 miles an hour instead of 65 miles an hour. That's what I think at least when I'm on my way back from Creighton and I need to get here because I'm late. There, it's just an arbitrary number. The, the law of God is not an arbitrary definition, but a reflection of his own nature and his own essence and his own being. So when, when Jesus says, The greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, and with with all your soul. That's not because God says, I need to create this connective relationship with my creation. It's because God within himself is the highest, most glorious being there is. He is our creator. He is the master and the Lord of all. And, And by virtue of his nature, we have an obligation to live in recognition of that. When Jesus says the second greatest commandment is you shall love your neighbor as yourself, it's because God is love. And if we don't love our neighbors as ourselves, we're not simply violating an arbitrary rule, we're denying the person of God. God's response to sin is, is never to condemn it, or is never to excuse it, but to condemn it. It's never to ignore it but to rebuke it and to identify it and to judge it. He warned Adam that Adam's sin would result in death. And and that only makes sense. In Genesis 2, God says, you can eat of any tree that's in the garden, but if you eat of the tree of the fruit of the or eat, eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. That's not an arbitrary rule that death would follow sin. You see, at the beginning of Genesis chapter 2, what do we see? We see God making man from the dust of the ground and then breathing into him the the breath of life. And God says, in the day you reject me as your God, I take my life back. Makes perfect sense. So with that as a background to understand the holiness of God, the nature of God, the fact that God uh, operates from his own nature and essence. Let's look at Isaiah 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe, filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled 
at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Let, let's just stop there and think about what Isaiah is saying. Now, Isaiah is a prophet in Israel around 700 B.C. It's the year of King Uzziah's death. Uzziah had been a good king to start with. He, he ascended the, the throne at a young age, but he, came proud. he became proud, and he actually went into the temple, and, and he presented himself as a priest and violated the priesthood and violated the holiness and the the sanctity of the temple. And because of that, God struck him with leprosy. You're not allowed to simply march in before God as though everything's good. So in the year that Isaiah dies, Isaiah has a vision. He sees the Lord sitting on on his throne. Now God is spirit, Jesus says in John 4. He, He doesn't have physical form. He is invisible He has no body. So this is a vision. And the vision is designed to convey a very simple truth to Isaiah. And that is the holiness of God is is the most dominant characteristic of who God is and what heaven is like and determines how we behave. The, The first thing that Isaiah says about this glory and holiness is that the train of God's robe fills the temple. Again, God is spirit. He doesn't sit on a throne. He has no body. He, he uh, has no robe. He doesn't need clothes because he is a spirit. The train of this robe is a picture then of the glory of God that spreads throughout everything. Why not just say light filled the temple? Be- well, the light fills this room. And yet I can see all the way from this wall to that wall. I can see all the way through this room. We could come into this room if they cleared out the chairs and the few things that are in here. People would come in here and say, well, this room is empty. There's nothing in this room, but that's not true, is there? There's air in this room. Oh, but the air is invisible. That's true, but did you know that the air has weight? A cubic foot of air, I looked this up, a cubic foot of air weighs 1.2 ounces. That means the air in this room weighs about 500 pounds. There's 500 pounds of air in this room. There's weight and mass to the air in this room, even though we can't see it. Well, there's weight and mass to the glory of God, infinitely beyond anything that Isaiah can imagine. But if it remains invisible, then Isaiah continues to look through it. And so he sees it within the vision as a fabric as something that is visible and as fabric is is tangible, something that he could touch. I want you to see, too, that the center of this is the Lord sitting on a throne. The seraphim, angelic beings, are calling out to one another constantly is the sense of the holiness of God. And at the, the... message of the holiness of God at the declaration of the holiness of God the foundations of the thresholds of the temple itself are are constantly shaking so God is the center and the focus of heaven we see that also in Revelation chapter 4 when John is called up in the vision that he has in Revelation He says, I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting on the throne was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. 
around the throne, around the throne. God is the center of what John sees. So it's my earnest hope that none of you have wasted your hard-earned money on the, the books that fall into the I died and went to heaven and came back so I could write a book and sell it to you for 1495 category. Because every one of those people is lying. How do we know that they're lying? Because they come back and they say, oh, I went to heaven and it was so quiet, peaceful. There was green grass and blue skies and Aunt Tilly was there and my old dog was there. One of these authors said that he died and went to heaven and had this vision and he came back and he wrote a book. His name is Don Piper. He wrote a book called 90 Minutes in Heaven. You know the very first printing of his book? He says in his book, there was no sign of God. In subsequent printings, he saw God. It was like, you know, if you're, if you're going to try and bilk Christians out of their money by telling them you've gone to heaven and you've seen God, gone to heaven, you, you better see God. The very fact that he, in later printing, said, oh yeah, I forgot, God was there. No, you're just a liar, you're just a con artist. Oh yeah, yeah, and others have admitted that they made it all up. Well, God is at the center of all things. God is at the center of heaven. The seraphim are there in verse 2. We see that. Seraphim are angelic creatures. There are different categories. Cherubim is another category. Uh, There are different levels that God has created. I don't know if we would call them species in that sense, but there are a number of different kinds of angelic beings. The seraphim are there. They have six wings, and and again, within this vision, this communicates truth to us. With two of the wings, they're covering their faces because even these holy, flawless, perfect angels are not worthy to gaze upon the face of Almighty God and His holiness. They cover their feet because even though they are holy, holy, perfect creatures, they're creatures standing in the presence of God, and they're not worthy to be in His presence. One cries out to another, and we have this tremendous phrase that we sang in our, in our first song this morning, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The Hebrew language, for the most part, has no words that deal with superlatives like better and best. It's an ancient language. They just didn't do that. And, and so what they did is they duplicated words for the sake of emphasis. God says at one point to Abraham, uh, and the English translation says, blessing, I will bless you. But it simply uses the word blessing twice to emphasize the, the greatness of this. There are only three words that are repeated three times in the, the Old Testament. One of those words is land, and it comes in Jer- the book of Jeremiah. As God is pronouncing a judgment against Israel and as the judgment is being announced, he, he comes to the point of saying, uh, the, uh, Jeremiah does, oh, land, 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 in this appeal and this warning. And of course, one of them is here, where God is said to be holy, holy, holy. No word is f- repeated four times, by the way. Holy, holy, holy. Holy. 
an emphasis strongly on this key element of who God is. First John 4, 8 says God is love, but it doesn't say God is love, love, love. The Bible says that God is truth, but it doesn't say he's truth, truth, truth. It says that he is just. It says that he is merciful. It says that he is righteous, that he is kind. But it doesn't repeat those words, but it repeats this. I think it's very likely that holiness is the single defining characteristic of God. This idea that he is self-existent, self-enclosed, that he is perfectly and completely himself at all times. And everything else that he does is a, a manifestation of that holiness. And then this remarkable statement is made by these angelic creatures. They say the whole earth is full of his glory. You would expect heaven to be full of the glory of God. We've already seen it in verse 1. The train of his robe fills the temple. We see it in verse 4. The temple fills with smoke. Smoke is another picture of the, the, the glory of God. Heaven is where, where, where God manifests him, himself in a, in a unique way. It's the place where he resides in that sense. It's the place of judgment. It's the place where worship is the highest and the greatest and the most pure. We would expect God's glory to be filling heaven. But God's glory fills the earth. Now, as I look around, I, I don't see any glory I, I see the ceiling, I see the floor, I see the glue coming up out of the floor, I see the walls, I, I see you, you see me. I don't see any glory. But that's not because it's not there, but because as the glory of God, it is as God is spirit. And apart from God granting us the ability to see, we are not going to see it. But nevertheless, it's true that the whole earth is filled with the glory of God. Now, heaven can't ignore the glory of God. Verse 4 says, The foundations of the, tre- the, thre- the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple is filling with smoke. So you have nonstop sound from the seraphim. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. That's going on constantly. We see the same thing in Revelation 4. In Revelation 4, Every time the angels say that, the 24 elders fall down a picture of the church, fall down in worship of, of God, which means that, that heaven is a noisy place. Heaven's a noisy place. And every time this declaration is made, everything shakes, which means heaven is, is in constant motion and constant activity. It, it is vibrating. It is trembling all the time because of the enormity of the holiness of God. So if you have this idea that one day you'll die and you'll lay your head down on the pillow and you'll close your eyes and you'll drift off to this quiet place, no, Heaven's, heaven is loud. I think heaven is probably the loudest place that is because every voice in heaven is crying out in worship of God and honor of God and, and acknowledging his holiness. In fact, in Revelation chapter 8, the, the striking thing is not that suddenly there's a great noise in heaven, but rather that in Revelation chapter 8, as the judgment of God is about to fall on the earth, there is silence in heaven for half an hour. 
All sound stops. All of these angels who have been worshiping God stop. They stop speaking. All of the people of God who are in heaven and responding to the greatness and the glory and the majesty and the holiness of God stop. They stop doing that. And and everything is still for 30 minutes because of the enormity of God's judgment against sin. Well, what about Isaiah? I, I hope you haven't forgotten about Isaiah. We're, we're looking at this through his eyes. I hope I've done at least a moderate job of painting a picture of the holiness of God and the enormity of it and the, the way that it is the focus and the center aspect of, of heaven. What about Isaiah? It's strange, but he isn't like even one of those guys who have gone to heaven and come back and written a book. Isaiah says, woe is me. That word woe is the Hebrew word oi, which is is often used humorously in our time. Oi, vey. But it's not a funny word. It's a word of mourning. It's a word of groaning. Uh, it's, It's obviously just purely a vowel sound Oy. If, if you have ever had terrible news hit, you'll, you'll know what it is to have this moan just rise out from within you and just escape your lips. That's what happens to Isaiah. The reality of his position before God, of God's holiness and his unworthiness, his sinfulness, hits him hard and and lays him low. He says, woe is me for I am ruined. We, We know what ruined means. Ruined can mean marred or scratched or chipped, but that's not what this word means. This word means destroyed, but it means more than that. It means dismantled. It means unraveled. It means undone. And I, th- I think that the sense, this is what I think, I think that the sense is that, is that Isaiah isn't just feeling the inner weight of his sin, but, but that all of his defense mechanisms, all of his protective layers, all the things that he has that we have about, about speaking well and being a good person and being a nice person and trying to appear good and trying to defend ourselves when inside we know who we are. All of that has been shattered and stripped away and all he can see is who he really is. Isaiah probably thought he was a good person. He probably thought that his religion answered the difficult questions for him. He probably thought that on the whole he was okay, but he couldn't maintain that illusion before a holy God. And I don't think that we should think that our experience would be different than Isaiah's. Linda and I had the opportunity of sharing Christ with a, a man. Linda had a flat tire and called me and I went down to changed the tire for her. When I got there, there was a man there talking with her. And we entered into conversation. He found out that I was a pastor and he, he shared his, his views on things. And 
I shared with him the, the truth of sin and the truth of judgment and of the, the greatness of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And he said, well, I tell you what, I don't want anybody to die for my sins. I'll pay for my own sins. And I said, you will, but you don't want to. He said, no, it's not going to be a problem. See, he's, he's got this self-confidence. He's got this ego. And, and part of that is a defense mechanism. If we don't have that, we would just melt away and die. But before God, it should fall. Before the word of God, it should fall. No human pride or ego can possibly withstand the exposure to the holiness of God. John, beginning in the, the book of Revelation, has a vision of Jesus in his glorified state. And John says that in response, he fell over like he was dead. Well, John was certainly born again. He was certainly saved. He was certainly filled with the Holy Spirit. He was an apostle. He was a close friend of Jesus. If anybody on earth could, could take a visit from the glorified Christ on their feet, it would be John. John couldn't take it. If John couldn't take it, I couldn't take it. You couldn't take it. And so the Lord shields us from those things. Fascinating to me, in verse 4 it says, the foundations of the, tre- of the shre- thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out. And then Isaiah says, I am ruined. And it's that same kind of a picture of an undoing. Well, if heaven shakes at the holiness of God, then you and I, along with Isaiah, not John, with Isaiah, are, are going to be ruined. We're going to be devastated. We're going to be undone. But the story doesn't end there. There is atonement and justification and forgiveness. He writes in verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. I should have finished in verse 5. Woe is me for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now it, we have to remember that this is a vision. John is not physically taken to heaven where an angel in a heavenly body God is spirit. He has no body. Angels have heavenly bodies. Read 1 Corinthians 15. They have boundaries and form. God only is omnipresent. An angel in his heavenly body reaches out with a pair of tongs for a literal coal burning on an altar and, and picks up the coal with the tongs and brings it over, holding the tongs and the coal in his hand and touches it to John's lips. That's not the picture. The picture is, is a vision. So why doesn't the angel simply reach out and take the coal in his hand? Why does he use tongs? Uh, it's not because it's too hot. I think it's because this coal is an emblem of atonement. This coal is really an emblem of what Jesus was going to do 700 years after Isaiah's life. And even the holy angels in heaven don't treat the atonement casually. They don't treat the cross and the, the, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ casually. He brings that over and he touches Isaiah's lips. He touches Isaiah at the point of, of his guilt and of his sin. 
And he says, your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. That, that is a promise that is ultimately fulfilled in what Jesus would do, again, seven centuries later in history. Why would the angel tell him your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven rather than your iniquity, iniquity will be taken away and your iniquity will be or your sins will be forgiven because God is so sure about what he's doing that it's real even before the fulfillment of it has taken place. And the impact on Isaiah is immediate. Verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Isaiah is no longer the shattered, broken, ruined, cowering sinner. He's now confident, not self-confident, but confident in God. He knows that his sins have been atoned for. His conscience has been cleansed. He's no longer anguished over this remaining sin. He knows that God has a purpose and has a plan and has dealt with that. And so he's filled with faith. He's confident in the promise of God. He's free of the terror that he had just felt. He's free of the hopelessness that he had just felt. He's still waiting for the historic fulfillment of those things, but the promise of God can't be broken. When God says it shall be done, it it shall be done. Nothing will prevent it. And so for Isaiah, it's as good as done. And I should point out too that God doesn't simply restore Isaiah's self-confidence or self-worth. In fact, I would say he doesn't do that at all. He doesn't restore Isaiah's ego. He restores Isaiah. It's Isaiah himself who has been ruined. This coal is an emblem, I believe, of, of what Jesus would do on the cross. And this morning as we share communion, that, that, that bread, that cracker, and the, the juice are emblems of what Jesus did in history 2,000 years ago. That coal that was touched to Isaiah's lips was a, an emblem of what Jesus would do. The coal itself had no power to take anything away. Likewise, the, 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 the bread and the, the cup of communion have no power to do anything. They can't grant us grace. They can't wash anything away or take anything away. They're emblems that point us at Jesus on the cross. We can't substitute Jesus' death and resurrection for a a cracker and a cup. But that bread and that cup are a reminder to us of what Jesus has done for us. I think you might agree it would have been a terrible sin for Isaiah after verse 7, after his iniquity had been taken away and his sin had been forgiven. If when God said, who will go? If Isaiah had said, well, I'm out of here. My conscience is clean now, so I'm going to go live my life. That's really saying I I really wasn't guilty at all. God really hasn't done anything for me at all. My life is my own. And now that my debt has been paid and I don't have to worry about it, I can go continue. It'd be equally sinful for us and it is first corinthians 11 says 
to, to receive communion, to receive the Lord's table casually. That's why the text tells us to examine ourselves. Now, it doesn't say examine yourself to see if there's sin in your life. Of course there's sin in your life. It says examine yourself to make sure that you don't do this in an unworthy manner. The, the unworthy manner is not taking your sin too seriously, but rather not taking the atonement seriously, treating that lightly. And, and I've treated it lightly, haven't you, at times in your life? If you've been in the church, if you were raised in the church or you've been around for a while, there are times that you receive communion and your head's somewhere else. That sin is also forgiven, but it's a sin. And so what we have is, is the opportunity this morning as, we, as grace helps me pass the, the elements of, of communion to you, you have the opportunity to come before the Lord and do at least acknowledge, <coughs> Lord, if you came to me right now and tore away all of my defense mechanisms, I would be shattered. I would be horrified. And I entrust myself to you. I put my trust in you. And because I put my trust in you and what Jesus did for me 2,000 years ago, I know that the day is coming when, when everything else that is residual will be dealt with and taken away. We practice an open communion. You don't have to be a member of One Hope Fellowship to partake. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you have trusted him for your salvation, that's sufficient. That's between you and the Lord. Let's pray and then we'll pass the elements. Father, we thank you for...